about disunity, about you know, images of strife and division and conflict and rage and anger and murder and destruction. And then God said, that's mm, not what I want you to see. I, I, not, I, I don't want you to focus on that because James tells us the tongue is a fire and can cause a raging forest fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. The image I want to leave with you when we, when we, in the beginning, and I'll refer back to this this year, two years ago, less than two years ago, Christian witnesses stood up 18 hours after their loved ones were murdered, and they stated to the man who'd killed their loved ones, we love you and we forgive you. That was the most powerful, most focused Christian statement we've heard in a long time in this nation. And it transformed the city. And it's still, the power of that is still moving out throughout the nation. A few days later, 30,000 people crossed the Ravenel Bridge holding hands in grief for those who had died, but in celebration of that word of forgiveness. It still resonates today. And part of the, the vision that we have at the Christian Chamber is to support and encourage this type of unity, a community which is a common unity within us. Because those people were of all faiths, of all colors, all denominations, unified in one purpose, to raise up forgiveness through this city and throughout the nation. Unity. Let me open with a short witness. I was called by God in my early teens. I was going to be a priest. And um, my father later on in life became a, an Episcopal priest. But back then, I was called and I was steeped in the Word. And, you know, I, I, I loved the, the Word of God and I loved going to church and I loved studying. But as I got into my later teens, I ran from that calling. And I used an excuse. I discovered the other G word, girls. And so that was a good excuse not to study for the priesthood, not to worry about. But the real, the real issue was this, ego. Because as I got into my later teens, I didn't want God telling me what to do with the girls. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so, and I was a product of the times, this is 50 years ago now, I was a product of the 60s. And back then, we all were rebelling. We all thought we were smarter than everybody else, our parents certainly, and forget the church and 2,000 years of teaching and culture and what we've learned from, what we had learned from our forefathers here. We said, we know better. We can do better. We have to choose. And I chose between, I had to choose, I thought, between science and religion, between reason and faith. And so I chose science and reason. And I walked away from God and at 17 decided that I was an avowed atheist. And I was one for 27 years. I denied the existence of God. But to, be, to believe these things, you have to put blinders on. You have to build a fortress that is your ego. And you have to deny miracles all around you every day. You have to deny the beauty of this world. You have to be reactive against anything that might change this worldview, this narrow worldview. And you know, you think that science is the answer to everything. And we've seen, it's incredible what we've seen in the last 50 years, 100, 150 years. But what you fail to see if you believe in science as the answer, you fail to see that science gives us objects we get new inventions every day, but they don't tell us how to use them. They only tell us, you know, they don't tell us what is good, what is bad. 
They only speak to the use of them. They talk about is, not ought. Ought. And so you go from science to reason and you say, well, man is rational. It's the liberal promise, the secular promise. We can be perfected. Man is rational. If only we give it to those smart peoples elsewhere. Man can, we can improve man. We'll get better. Except that as I, I, I went through looking like Aeschylus did, I looked for the rational man. And that narrowed and narrowed and narrowed until I had the only rational man I knew, me. <laughs> but then one very dark day I realized that all that was image. And there was darkness. And this atheist of 27 years prayed to God that he didn't believe in. Funny thing is, God answered. And he told me, you're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. And so I did, and since that time I've been back to the study of the Word and the love of the church. And so I've still been in ministry. I've spent 35 years in risk management and insurance and I was with uh, 19 years with Anderson here in Charleston. And, but I, my writing, I always was writing about the Ten Commandments and about how we live within this world because we are in battle. I don't have to tell you, we are in the battle of our lives. But the battle is no different now than it was back at the time of Jesus or at the time of Paul or Augustine or, or, or Aquinas or 500 years ago today when Martin Luther shook the foundations of the church. It's the same battle against the forces that want to deny Jesus Christ. And so, how do we live and work and witness in this fallen world today? Is there a guide? Well, there are all kinds of guides. There's His Way at Work, the Business by the Book, Alpha at Work. There are all kinds of ministries which speak specifically to the, how do we put Christ into our business? But what I wanted to write, my contribution was Ten Commandments of Business, sort of the why, the why of what we do for Christ in business. I call it God's Risk Management Plan for Business. Where's Scott Cave? Hey, Scott. I had to put in business continuity, personal life continuity. Uh, Scott and I used to give talks, and, and we still do once in a while, on disaster planning, business continuity. We live in, you know, of course, this is paradise here, but we have the devil around in terms of hurricanes and earthquakes. But... So I wrote God's risk management plan for business and for life too because the Ten Commandments, they're not right because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're right. And not only are they right, they're practical for business. What kept me safe in those 27 years that I was an atheist, an unbeliever, was I followed the Ten Commandments. They worked. And they saved my marriage and they saved my children and they saved my job. I didn't want to recognize that, but I was practicing the Ten Commandments. And so I dedicated the Ten Commandments for business to God in the workplace where I kept getting inspired by speakers. I only have time today to talk about two. And so let's talk about the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And what I do with each of these commandments is look at the corollary, the positive of these. And I talk about how do we apply the positive to business? The positive in this is the sacred exists. What does that mean? You know, we've forgotten about how holy and sacred God is. Even we Christians, we forget. We forget that you know, God was holy. Put off your shoes for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. 
We've forgotten that he's a God of power and might. And when God came down for the Ten Commandments 3,500 years ago to Mount Sinai, the entire mountain smoked with the fire of God. And the entire mountain quaked with the power of the Holy Spirit there. And we've forgotten, that one got to me quicker, that God is sacred. Later on with the Ark of the Covenant, Uzzah reached out to touch. And he actually reached out to steady the Ark. But he was not to touch it. It was so sacred. And the anger of the Lord was kindled. And Uzzah died that day before the Lord. We have forgotten God's holiness, his power, and his sacredness. So what does it mean, the existence of a sacred God? It means God is God. I am not. I'm not the captain of my soul. I am not the master of my fate. I'm not in charge. Thanks be to God. He is. My work is not. But let me tell you something. If we have entrepreneurs in the room, that's the hardest thing to remember. I made this product. I brought it to life. I named it. I hired all these people to help me produce it. I hired the sales force to go out and sell it. I'm on the S&P 500 now. We're doing great. I give more money to my church than anybody else. I help the community. I'm doing all this. And what we forget, wait, wait a minute. I, 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 I. He's forgotten the focus. I have a friend, Dick Davis, who's a turnaround artist. He goes into businesses that are in trouble. And he helps those businesses, if they can, reverse. And what he says is, in there, invariably, almost in every case, the problem is the CEO, the guy who runs it, because he wants all this control. And he keeps the control while the business is falling around, apart around him. And so Dick calls it the Superman syndrome. He's got to get that guy to realize he's not in charge. I call it the God syndrome. And we all have it. We want to be in charge. I want to be the run, one to run things in my life. But if we realize that God is in charge, the sacred God changes everything in our lives, but especially our work, too. Because our work is vocation. All you priests in the room, you know what that means. But a friend of mine introduced me for, a talk, for, for one of these talks about a year ago. And he made the statement, well, Joe Stringer, he's retiring from full-time business and going into full-time ministry. I'm like, well, no. well wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, I, I, that was my father. He was the priest. I'm not doing ministry here. And he's like, uh, yeah, you are. And I realized he was right. And what I realized, even in talking about this and hearing the speakers who come to God in the workplace and to come to the Christian chamber to speak about their witness and work, was that we are in vocation, no matter whether we're an accountant or we're an engineer or we're a risk manager or an insurance salesman. Whatever we do, we are called to vocation. And what happens when God is sacred and we follow vocation? The employee who was a human tool, a slave to be worked as hard as we could, becomes an associate. The boss, the tyrant, now a partner to be respected. The sale, I'd do anything for a sale back in the day. Now that sale becomes a client to whom we owe our best effort. And the competitor who we used to run down and lie about and try and steal his business becomes a colleague, someone who we respect and build up so that he and I together can bless our business and increase the integrity of whatever business we're in. And so when God is sacred, when the Lord is centered in our life and our business, it changes how we do business. On the other hand, what's the measure of secular business? 
If, the secular, if there is no God, it's the bottom line. This is what happens. If the sacred does not exist, and I've got to quote this, but secular power and material things are all that matter, we make our own standards. Profit, fame, especially power, become the coin of the realm. What's a commodity? Everything. Services, products, sex, babies, children, life, death. We commodify everything in this nation. So much so we live by the numbers. We live by numbers today. We number, our numbers define where we are in relation to last year and maybe next year. We crunch numbers. We live by numbers. COLA, ROI, CPI, QE4, U4, GDP, S&P, Dow Jones at 20,000. Oh, we're living high now. And the advertising tell us, tells us all the time, you deserve that bigger house. You deserve the hot car, the glowing skin, the youth. You deserve all the best toys. Oh, it's, it's the best. You deserve it. And we believe it. And we buy and we buy and we work and we work to pay and pay and pay. And what's left after it's all said and done? Aren't you exhausted? <laughs> this is secular business. The kid's working already. The prophet tells us, what does man gain by all the toil that he toils under the sun? But if God is in charge of business, we're transformed and we learn to rest. Augustine said, my heart is restless until I rest in thee. And today we, we really only have time to look at, at two commandments and I've chosen, since we, I opened with unity and James talking about how our words can change can strike a fire or perhaps have a fire of the Holy Spirit to change this country. I thought I'd talk about you shall not murder. And the corollary that for business is speak life and love. And this goes back to Jesus and, you know, of course we know what the products of, of manufacturing. We go back to Jesus and he tells us in the Beatitudes right after them, words murder. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be li liable to the hell of fire. How many times this week have you been tempted to say to the other side, you fool, how can you believe that? How can you be doing that? Or how many times do we in business have the employee who just doesn't get it and our anger flares up? And Jesus tells us, that's murder. So we're called to speak. And Jesus also tells us when we talk about the mouth, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. We see that all around us today. We're living it today. What can defeat this in our world? And I go back to that very first image I brought to you. When we get done with this and everything crumbles, by the way, before we get there, the bottom line of all of that divisiveness is me centered on me, me looking in the mirror instead of at God. And why am I looking in the mirror? I want to be God. The word that defeats all of that is forgiveness. And it starts with Jesus Christ on the cross who forgave us our sins, who died for our sins and brought us into relationship to the Father. We've seen that same forgiveness here 
in that same image, in the relatives who spoke. And the power of that one word of forgiveness resonates. It resonates in this room. It resonates in this city. It reaches out and it is still going out to impact this country. But in order for that word to continue to lighten the darkness in this nation, we have to support it. And that's why I was very happy when the South Carolina Christian Chamber came to town, by the way, and this is where, of course, unity came from. When I first wrote this book, I thought God in the workplace would be the mechanism by which we go out and find, um, begin to, to preach this message to business. Then the Christian Chamber came to town, and their vision inspired me. Here was a group whose vision was to build a platform where we begin with business and we be, be, begin message, bringing a message of Jesus Christ into business. But then we take those businesses and match them to nonprofit organizations, to parachurch organizations that need support from businesses who can help. And those businesses want to help those non-church or non parachurch organizations. And then from there, we communicate with the pastors and the priests. We bring the flock back in. The platform they're building begins to spread throughout the cities in South Carolina. And the vision that William Renfro is our visionary, Hunter Renfro, for any of you Clemson fans, he's Hunter Renfro's uncle. We talked about that. Um, through every city in, the, in South Carolina, we build this platform then and begin to go to Georgia and to North Carolina, to Alabama, to Florida, and throughout, eventually throughout the United States. But it's not a platform based on words. We're not, this is, the South Carolina Christian Chamber is not, as a chamber, a lobbying organization or organizations going to speak. We want to have a unified voice for Christ. But that voice comes from deeds, from doing. We reach out to schools. We reach out to the, the streets, to the kids in need that, need, that, that ha need mentors to help them build roadblocks between them and an inevitable prison term. And then to the family, to build, rebuild the structure of the family and to support those, you know, the, the, the single young mother who's desperate and poor and needs someone to just be there and listen and help her in her needs, to help to rebuild her life. And we hope eventually to, to bring back into the church a renewed and revived business nonprofit and family structure. This is the vision of the South Carolina Christian Chamber. I hope eventually our state director can come down and share that more deeply with you. But I wanted today just to touch on that and, and to tell you that I see that vision coming to fruition here in Charleston, throughout South Carolina. It inspires me. And I, I hope that we'll be able to share that with you and inspire you and help. I still feel the pulse of that witness of forgiveness. It's the same pulse of the Holy Spirit that shook the mountain at Sinai. It's the same pulse that ripped the veil in two when Jesus died on the cross. It was not a pulse of anger, but of God's love that ripped that veil aside and brought us into communion with Him. And then finally, that pulse is a tidal wave that starts here in Charleston. It's going to spread throughout this country and transform this nation. I do truly believe that. And I pray that you see that vision 
and that you reach out to help others in making it come true. Thank you.